Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 167, The Triumph of Lancaster. Okay, so this week, the gloves come off. The title's a bit of a plot spoiler, sorry about that, oops and all. Or is it? Could it be a clever double bluff? But before all that, I need to talk about the word donator. Yep, that would be the perfectly acceptable and in the Oxford English Dictionary word, donator. I feel vindicated. Also, before I start, I had something of a flurry of questions, a couple of which I thought might be of general interest. Joe asked about what happens at court, and what did moving the court to the Lancastrian Midlands actually mean? I'm not an expert, but certainly Margaret did move some of the machinery to Coventry too, clerks and so on, but not all of it. But much of what happened at court was actually just hanging around, being with the royal household, doing a bit of hunting, hoping the king or queen noticed you. Peter of Blois was a rather delightfully depressive commentator at the time of Henry II, and he described the mind-numbing boredom and hateful politics of court. There might be judgment and consultation and all of that as well, but justice by and large had become a separate process by the 15th century. David McLean, he of this programme twice, asked what Henry VI's madness was. Frankly, no idea. I have asked around. The problem is, I guess, that the description of the symptoms could be tripe at this distance of years. But catatonic schizophrenia is apparently a possibility. So, onward. But before we launch into all the politics and gory stuff, I think we should spend a bit of time talking about Warwick. 
After all, for a man named Warwick the Kingmaker, we've not seen him making many kings so far. But at St Albans, Warwick had begun to swash the buckle. In years afterwards, it takes him a while, but the captaincy of Calais really makes the man come alive. Getting into Calais proved no easier than York had found it. The garrison were unpaid, they refused to accept him, but finally Warwick managed to find a way in. Once in, Warwick then owned the problem himself, how to pay the garrison when the money from London basically didn't pay the bills. One way was rabble-rousing, charisma, flattery, whatever you want to call it. The far southeast of England, Kent and Sussex, were critical to the supply of Calais. So in the spring of 1457, Warwick toured Sandwich and Canterbury, feasting the good burghers of the towns and praising them for their generosity. And he arrived back in Calais with ships bulging with provisions. Which may be one reason why in the same year, the French under Pierre de Brez hit Sandwich hard to try and dry up that supply. The reputation of the Admiral of England, Exeter, suffered as a result, and Warwick's shameless self-promotion meant that it was he, not Exeter, who was, as a result, given the title of Keeper of the Seas for three years. Exeter was livid. Exeter might have been a little more humble about the extent of his failure to stop the French raid, just saying. Warwick had an opportunity. He was in control of England's biggest professional army. Of course, England's biggest professional army would have his hide if he didn't pay them. Warwick solved his problem by turning to what basically amounted to piracy. Merchant vessels from the Low Countries and Italy were attacked by rogue ships sent out from Calais with a nudge and nod and a wink from the boss. There was little discrimination made between friend and foe. There was little discrimination made between friend and foe. Furious complaints rose from merchants in the Hanseatic town of Lübeck when one of their ships was plundered and robbed. But in May 1458, Warwick hit top gear. One of his scout ships spotted 28 sail coming up the channel from the south. Turns out it was a fleet of Spanish ships, 16 with forecastles and prepared for war. Warwick sailed out with five warships, three caravels and four pinnaces. Anyone out there know what that means? A caravel is a highly manoeuvrable ship with lateen sails, the ship that will soon open up the world to the Portuguese and Spanish. A pinnace is essentially a poxy little boat for running errands. I exaggerate for effect. Some pinnaces could be reasonably large, but still, we're talking third division here. So, two navies not closely matched. But when it was all over, after six hours of bloodshed, two Spanish ships lay at the bottom of the Ali Alio, and six had stuck to Warwick's sticky little fingers. A lot of this was ferociously irresponsible, actually. Sinking your allies' ships is generally considered bad for international relations. Warwick can hardly claim to be working for peace, unity and a better future when undermining his own government. But on the other hand, his men had to be paid somehow. But the real truth, I suspect, is about Warwick himself. Warwick was throughout his career a player. It's all about him. He has to be centre stage. He's always looking for the main chance. He wants to feel important and, crucially, it's critical that others tell him just how important he is.
and for Warwick all of this played into his hands. Throughout the Wars of the Roses, London would prove to be a basically Yorkist city, at enormous cost to the Lancastrian cause, and Warwick was a major reason for that. They loved his daring do and outrageous partiality. So let's take the incident of the Italian ships. So, the rule was everyone had to use the Calais staple. That was good for everyone, for Calais, where the business happened, for the wool merchants, who had access to European markets, for the government, who made a bob or two. But sometimes the Queen wasn't so keen. It meant the money didn't pass through royal fingers, it went into the public purse, where it was a little bit more difficult to get at. So, on one occasion, such as this one in question, they gave special licences to some Italian merchants, allowing them to trade for wool outside the staple. In return, for the medieval equivalent of a brown paper envelope. London erupted in fury against the Italian merchants in as fine a display of xenophobia as you could wish for. As it happens, they had no patience with Henry and his queen anymore. The lawlessness and foreign weakness was ruining trade. So before you could say Jack Robinson, London was looking at an anti-Henry and Margaret riot that had to be fiercely quashed. So when Warwick got together some of his mates in Calais and Sandwich, kitted out a few ships, sailed up the Thames to Tilbury Docks and carried off the Italian ships to Calais, everyone went potty with delight. Potty. In a world where the glory of the Hundred Years' War had turned to poo, and the country seemed to be going to hell in a handcart, Warwick was the one bright spot in a dark and gloomy sky. One chronicle reflected the status Warwick's exploits had earned him. All the commons of this land had him in great praise and love, and so made his reputation as the greatest knight living. For Warwick as well, it was all tremendously exciting and life-affirming. His position in Calais also gave him access to Europe's finest and greatest, allowed him to play diplomatic games with the French and Burgundians. The Burgundian court in particular was the most magnificent in Europe, and being wined and dined by Duke Philip in particular made not just Warwick's reputation grow, but probably his ego and self-belief too. In fact, there's a whole book full of diplomatic goings-on between England and France and Burgundy that is so toweringly tiresome that I'm not going to go into it more than a smidgen. But take my word for it. During these years, Warwick becomes someone no one could ignore, from King Charles of France to the man on the Cheapside omnibus. The trigger for the outbreak of violence that was to follow in 1459-61 to is a bit difficult to find, to be honest. That point at which the squabbles and disputes and love days turn to genuine violence. I hope that the causes of the wars are reasonably clear by now, whatever weight you attach to each element. The selfish search for power of the magnates, the weakness of the king, the basic structure of the medieval state. But the actual trigger is rather difficult to find. But essentially what happens is that the mistrust and suspicion between the two parties grows through 1459 until the thin skein that held them together in a search for peace snapped apart. There were continuing signs of the determination of the Queen to bring the Yorkist lords to heel, and probably to break them. And there seems little doubt 
that it was the Queen managing and controlling the feeble Henry. Henry's itinerary has him constantly at religious houses, and the more outspoken chroniclers were united in identifying the Queen as the prime mover. One chronicler wrote that those at court knew well that the workings were made by her, for she was cleverer than the king, and that is clear from his deeds. Once Wiltshire was appointed treasurer, removing Borchier, the Earl of Essex, he undertook a systematic exploitation of the Crown's rights, building a war chest. Commissions of array were raised and armaments ordered. York and Salisbury, skulking in their estates, were no doubt informed by their spies and informants, and they would have heard and wondered, or probably guessed, what these men were intended for. And then in early 1459, the Queen had Lord Rivers summon Warwick to a council, supposedly to discuss rumours of a planned French raid. Now Warwick was mighty suspicious, as well he might have been. Margaret had ulterior motives, infuriated by Warwick's irresponsible raids, especially the ruining of her plans to raise 4,000 quid through the concessions to the Italian merchants, she had planned retribution. So Warwick took what precautions he could, which essentially consisted of plenty of burly retainers wearing the red jacket and badge of the ragged staff. In the anteroom in the palace, Warwick and his men found large numbers of men of the royal household lounging ostentatiously around. Warwick went alone into the council chamber, but then insults began to be exchanged outside. A dagger was drawn, and within seconds a fully-fledged brawl was in progress. By the minute, the numbers of household men were swollen by men rushing up from the kitchens and pantries. Hearing cries of Warwick, Warwick outside, Warwick legged it outside and together with his men cut a path from the palace down to his barge and so safely to Calais. Now whether this was attempted murder or just a brawl is impossible to know but Warwick was pretty clear about his interpretation of events and the messages to Salisbury and York flew. By late spring Margaret was clearly preparing for war. Court was set up at Coventry, letters recruiting men were sent with dire threats of retribution for non-attendance. Little Prince Edward was now the face of the Lancastrian party. The growing retinue in Coventry were given the prince's livery badges, in the form of a swan with a crown round its neck. And then, to set the trap, a council was ordered for June and Warwick, York and Salisbury included amongst those commanded to attend. We are now on the inevitable path to conflict since the Yorkist lords refused to appear, including George Neville, Warwick's brother, and the Bourchier. As a result, the council indicted the Yorkist lords for their non-appearance. Without doubt, there would be worse to follow. All of which was a bit irrelevant, because for York, Salisbury and Neville, it was enough. At Salisbury's Caput, the castle of Middleham in Yorkshire in the north of England, the assembled strength of the Nevilles, an army of 5,000 men, had started out. In Calais, Warwick was negotiating with his captains, including one Andrew Trollope. Warwick wanted to lead part of the Calais garrison, 600 men, over to England to fight for York. Now Trollope was a captain that had fought for both Beaufort and Warwick from Calais. Over the last few years he'd shared in Warwick's glory and forged a partnership together but he and his soldiers were worried. They'd fight for Warwick against anyone, except against the king. 
to fight against the king went against everything medieval society held dear. And so Warwick swore an oath that he would not lead them against the king. Satisfied with the promise, Warwick and his men landed at Sandwich on the 20th of September, 1459. So, here's the situation. York was at his caput of Ludlow. You might expect this to be somewhere near York, given that he was called Duke of York, but no, (laughs) not a bit of it. It's in the west of England, on the borders of Wales. The Great Council is at Coventry, Salisbury's in the north, and Warwick the south-east. The Great Council is at Coventry in the Midlands, Salisbury's in the north, and Warwick the south-east. The plan of the Yorkists seemed pretty clear, to get together at Ludlow, which Margaret was understandably keen to avoid. Warwick was still some way away. He'd reached London in a blaze of glory and was welcomed with some enthusiasm. His message was the same as York's in 1455. It's those evil councillors around the king that need sorting. To direct criticism at either king or queen was treason. Somerset was gone, and so now it was the likes of Shrewsbury they had a go at. It was clearly Salisbury who posed the main threat at this point. Margaret needed someone to stop Salisbury joining up with York at Ludlow until she was ready to march with the main royal army. And she found her answer in Lord Audley, a man with enormous power and land in the West Midlands, who by the time Warwick arrived in England had raised 10,000 men or more. Audley and Lord Dudley moved north to intercept Salisbury. So look, we're about to have a battle, which I appreciate is not necessarily that popular with you all. But seriously, there's going to be a lot more in the Wars of the Roses. But sadly, before we start the battle, this seems like an appropriate time to talk about matters military, to kind of set things up. Sorry to do this to you when we're just about to launch. So, the Wars of the Roses are characterised, at some points at least, by hordes of very large armies rushing around the countryside. The size of the armies is really quite surprising in the light of the relatively small size of the armies Henry V used to put France to the sword. So while he had to make do with often eight or 12,000 at the most, I think, the armies that fought the Battle of Towton in 1461 were famously the largest ever to fight on British soil. Contemporaries talked about numbers as big as 100,000, though here, I am afraid to tell you, the contemporaries were clearly telling porkies should be thoroughly ashamed of themselves and wash their mouths out with soap and water. But the combined armies could well have totaled fifty to 60,000. Wow, I hear you gasp. How come, I hear you ask. Well, I'm glad you asked that. The old wisdom had it that this was the whole problem with the period anyway. This is why we had the Wars of the Roses, because you had all these over-mighty barons with their over-mighty retinues wandering all over the place. Well, as I believe we've discussed, actually, not even a loads of money like Warwick or Buckingham could afford to keep a household numbering thousands. Did we talk about this? My powers are fading, but briefly, at most a lord might have 50 to 60 knights or squires in his household permanently ready to fight. Now, true enough, these guys stood out in their training and professionalism and would form a crucial nucleus of armies gathered around their lord. But if they'd formed those armies then probably we'd be talking about the spot of trouble of the roses rather than the wars of the roses. There were two other potential sources of fighting men during the wars, 
By this time, we have largely forgotten the glory days of the 11th century and Odo, the club-wielding, head-smashing Bishop of Bayer. Bishops no longer fought, and no bishop is known to have been part of the armies. This was a strictly secular matter. So, the other sources were professional soldiers paid for by the crown, or the tenantry. The first of these sources was minuscule. Essentially, Calais had the only substantial standing army. There were a few others scattered around, the border towns such as Carlisle and Berwick, for example, but the largest of these was Berwick, with maybe at most 300 men in times of war. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Connected with these professionals was the traditional right by the king and some office holders to issue a commission of array and call out the people of the town or county. And actually there were quite a number of them issued, but they were generally the chocolate teapot of the wars. The levies from the commissions of array were often grumbly and crumbly, and were only committed to fighting within their own county borders. And if you were chasing a Yorkist army, that could be inconvenient, and leave you a little short if the chased became the chaser. The long and short is that these massive armies came from the Lord's tenantries. In times of need, the Lord's reeves and bailiffs and constables would descend on the villages and farms and manor houses and tell the gentry and gentlemen that their Lord needed them. Often matters would be arranged beforehand. In 1471, the Duke of Clarence ordered Henry Vernon to make sure his tenants would be ready to serve him on an hour's notice, which is quite an ask. Barely time to get out of bed, fix some toast. Put your pants on, I'd have thought. The loyalty and obligation between the Lord and his tenantry was no doubt deep. But the importance of the ordinary folk in the wars had a deep influence on the public nature of it. I have slightly critically described York and Warwick as rabble-rousers. And both of them tried to rouse the rabble because in this the rabble had an opinion. We might think of the wars as a bunch of overprivileged, greedy lords fighting it out while the ordinary folk got on with real life. But actually, the ordinary folk all have a firm view of who was in and who was out, and sat in pubs and argued out whether Warwick was a hero or a dipstick, and in a few recorded occasions, whether the king was up to the job or not. Recorded because questioning the king's competence was treason, and a few of the more opinionated lost their lives for their opinions. So the magnates who fought in the wars had to influence public opinion because public opinion mattered partly because the yeomanry elected Parliament and Parliament was significant, and partly because they were going to rely on the ordinary person when they wanted an army. While we're on the broad topic, it might be nice also to give you an idea of the scale and structure of society at this point. At the top, with income of over a thousand quid a year, you have the very, very poshest of society, the barons and the magnates. There's only something like 50 to 100 of these folk, or that is, 50 to 100 families. Below that, you've got knights on an income of about £40 a year or more. Using the term knight is a little misleading. 
since, as you know, sometimes people with this amount of money didn't want to formally become a knight because of all the duties it gave you. But there are probably something like 1,200 of these people, i.e. families, 1,200 families, who qualified for this status. Then you have a very similar number of what you might call the gentry. These are folks with an income of over £20 a year, and despite the feeble number, 20 notes in those days, what a lot of cash, you'd be pretty comfortable. And then you'd have what might be called the gentlemen. Maybe 2,000 families of these, with something approaching £20. Then below that, you have the yeoman, or the substantial husbandman, the middle ranks of medieval society. The yeoman would be a freeholder, have over 40 shillings a year in income, and maybe up to £5 a year in income. The yeoman was a parliamentary voter. The thing that gets me about all of that are the tiny, tiny numbers involved. But fine, so, back to the action. Da-da-da-da! Salisbury is charging down towards Ludlow to join York with maybe 5,000 men. Faster, boys! Rushing to intercept him was Audley, with a much bigger army, maybe 10,000 strong. In Audley's ears are the words of the Queen when she commissioned him for the task. Bring me Salisbury, Audley! Sure thing, boss. Not fussy about the condition he's in, frankly, orders. Right you are, miss. Folks, I'm aware that if we describe every battle in fine detail, we'd die of old age well before we get to Bosworth Field, but indulge me on this one, so I can set the scene, OK? Spurred on by the Queen, Audley managed to put himself between Salisbury and Ludlow, with Salisbury a good 70 miles away from his destination. Audley put himself in a strong position at the top of a ridge, with many of his men hidden from sight behind it. On the 23rd of September, Salisbury's army arrived at the opposing ridge at a place called Blore Heath. Now, Salisbury was a canny old bird and was not fooled a bit by Audley hiding half his men. And so he took up position on his opposing ridge and he waited. Waiting for the Angels of Avalon down in the valley below was a stream. Not wide, but quite deep. Not something to try and climb over while someone's trying to hack you into very small pieces anyway. So, both armies had good defensive positions and an unattractive terrain for an assault. So they sat down and waited for someone else to start things off. And what would the armies staring at each other have looked like? Well, motley is one word for it, a melange of different styles and dress and colour. Certainly, of course, no one single standard uniform. And yet there is the start a suspicion of the start of uniform with the livery that a few of the greatest magnates had begun to provide. The red jackets of Warwick, the red and black of Percy. The day of gunpowder and handgun had not yet really arrived, although it's so close you can smell it. There were handguns on the field, and small detachments of gunners would exist in the army, mingled in with the archers. They created so much smoke that they were a real problem in obscuring everyone's vision. Their rate of fire was woeful and their accuracy sucked. Apart from that, they were great. Made an impressive noise, certainly. Having said that, the day of field artillery definitely had arrived, and armies often had a cannon with them. Accuracy was still less than impressive, but again, they sounded great. However, in this particular case, it doesn't sound as though there was much artillery at Blore Heath. Most of the armies in the wars fought on foot, with a mounted contingent of knights and gentry and then a mass of archers. 
The fun thing about the Wars of the Roses, of course, is that here English and Welsh archer met Welsh and English archer. So, a very different situation to France. Anywho, there they all were, and all of this was going nowhere. So, Salisbury, who, as I say, was a bird most canny, played a tricky trick. He started to hitch up his wagons for all the world, as though he was preparing to run away, just like Poitiers. Audley, meanwhile, was visualising the Queen when he went back and said he'd missed his man. Although, actually, the Queen might not have been very far away. There is, in fact, a tradition that she was standing on the church tower at a village called Muckleston, watching events. Though, generally, that gets poo-pooed by historians. And also, while we're on the topic, it's worth mentioning that there's another Lancastrian army just hanging about, quite close, commanded by the Stanley brothers, William and Henry. Watch out for those Stanleys, folks. These are guys with serious commitment problems. So, Audley, worrying about how he'd look with the boss, you let him what? ordered a cavalry charge. Bad idea. Boggy stream, sharpened stakes, bunch of archers on a hill. You know what I'm talking about. Mayhem. Nothing daunted. After all, he had twice the number of men as Salisbury. Audley had another go. With exactly the same result. At this point, Audley might have expected a bit of help from the Stanleys. The Stanleys stayed right where they were, chewing nonchalantly on their straws. In fact, William Stanley even secretly sent a small contingent to help out Salisbury. Irritating if you're a Lancastrian. So fine, that's it. If a job's worth doing and all that. So Audley himself led 4,000 foot across the stream and up at Salisbury. Behind him, his men would have had some protection. The sallet, a round, open-faced helmet, was the preference and might be the only bit of metal armour a soldier wore. But many would have more, like a brigadine, a leather jacket covered with tiny metal plates, or knee guards. But motley is definitely the word. Most of them would have a thick jacket called a jacque, heavily stuffed. A writer of the time bravely advanced the glories of the jacque, writing... The softer the tunic, the better they do withstand the blows of arrows and swords. And besides that, in summer, they are lighter and in winter more serviceable than iron. Which is all very well, but anyone who could afford it got rid of the jacques as soon as they could and replaced it with a fine German or Italian plate armour. The knights marching forward with orderly might well have had armour that was at the height of sophistication. With complex, interlocking plates, much lighter plate, there's none of this cumbersome winch me onto a horse stuff. Full plate armour gave plenty of flexibility, and it was probably the helmet with its restricted field of view that was the greatest problem. Back to the foot soldiers then. Ripped from their farms, most of these folk didn't come with swords, they came with a far more vicious weapon, the bill. The bill is a long pole, often hexagonal for better grip, and at the end of it a big blade or sometimes hammer. The blade has a hook on it. The metal extends well down the shaft to protect it from having the blade cut off. They'd all have a small knife at their belt, great for paring apples, or slipping through the visor of some posh bloke's helmet to finish him off. And they'd have a super small shield, a buckler, at their belt. And so the two lines came close together, a bill length apart, searching for an opportunity, lunging and parrying. 
The bellman held his weapon at soldier height, elbows pressed in to avoid exposing armpits. The men behind crushed forward, the second line reaching over to try to find an exposed face, limb, anything. Every so often, the hook on the bill would catch someone and pull him off balance or off his feet, and more often than not, that was instant death. The only hope of survival was to crawl back through the mud, through the legs of your own men to the rear. You've got to wonder how all these inexperienced farmers felt about the life they began to lead when the wars were on. Well, a few lines have survived from a young soldier. I can't confirm the source, but given it appeared in a book by English Heritage, it should be kosher. When we're in a tavern, drinking strong wine and the ladies pass and look at us with those white throats and tight bodices, those eyes sparkling with smiling beauty, then nature urges us to have a desiring heart. Then we would overcome Yeomont and Agolant, and the others would conquer Roland and Oliver. But when we're on campaign on our trotting charges, our bucklers around our necks and our lances lowered, and the great cold is congealing us together, and our limbs are crushed before and behind, and our enemies are approaching us, then we would wish to be in a cellar so large that we might never be seen by any means. As it happens, it was not to be Audley's day. He was hacked down and killed, and his assistant commander, Lord Dudley, captured. 2,000 Lancastrians lay dead on the field, and the Stanleys hadn't moved a muscle. The Queen fled from the tower at Muckleston, having ordered the shoes on her horses to be turned round to fool any pursuers. Salisbury marched on to Ludlow. Fatally, he sent two of his boys, Thomas and John, back with some of the men. Both were duly captured and imprisoned, and the Yorkist army weakened. Warwick had also made his way, so Salisbury, York and Warwick all met at Worcester Cathedral. And there, all together, they swore a solemn oath to stick together and protect each other. By the 10th of October, they were all back at Ludlow Castle, and no doubt they were entertained to high feasts and celebrations. Cecily Neville would have been there with all York's brood. Edward, the eldest, was now 17, and a full part of it with the grown-ups. Good-looking lad, tall, handsome and strong. Edmund of Rutland was also part of the grown-up brigade, 16 years old, while George was just 10 and Richard at 7 would have been at their mother's knee. Two of York's daughters, Anne and Elizabeth, were already married and probably absent, but the 13-year-old Margaret would probably have been there. All well, good and jolly, but as they looked around they might have felt that the army of York was a little on the light side. But nonetheless, but never mind, they'd have taken comfort in Andrew Trollope and his men of Calais, hardened, practised and competent men of war. The walls of Ludlow Castle were high and thick, the bridge in front of the town, Ludford Bridge, strongly defended, and the artillery looked impressive. That same day the three wrote the traditional letter, professing their loyalty to the king and queen, moaning about the losers around them but by the 12th of October, the Royal Army had arrived, and it was a whopper. It was stuffed full of earls. The King and the Queen were clearly in attendance. And there were two conclusions to be drawn by the outside observer. Firstly, it looked very much as though it was York, Salisbury and Warwick that were the forces of faction and disunity here. And secondly, if York won this, it would be the greatest comeback since Lazarus.
In the night, York's cannon bravely roared their defiance over Ludford Bridge while the Yorkist army waited for the dawn. But at some point, Andrew Trollope left the presence of his master Warwick stony-faced. He had been promised that he would not have to fight the king, and yet there, across the river, was the banner of the king. And in the darkness, Trollope and 400 of his hardened warriors of Calais left the Yorkist army and defected to Lancaster. Until the day of his death, Trollope would now be an effective and loyal servant of the king. The odds had just got longer, and in the night, our outside observer might have seen the candles burning late as Warwick, York and Salisbury gathered together in anxious debate. The army of York came to its feet with the dawn. Lighting the campfires, grabbing whatever food they could, worrying about the battle to come. When a rumour began to run through the ranks. Where were their leaders? Where was the Duke? Why was he not among his men, building their courage, recognising their loyalty? Where was the gallant Warwick, the lordly Salisbury? Well, they'd legged it. Lifted up their skirts and run for it. Not great for their honour, reputation, and certainly not nice for their deserted men, but very probably an excellent career choice. One of those excellent ladybird history books I keep warbling on about from my youth was called Warwick the Kingmaker, and my abiding memory is of pictures of people riding furiously over winter landscapes to escape their pursuers. Well, here was just one such occasion. York and his second son, Rutland, headed to the Welsh coast and from there to Ireland. Salisbury and Warwick took York's heir, Edward, Earl of March, southwards to the West Country, and from North Devon they found a boat to take them to Guernsey, and thence to safety at Calais. The Queen had won, and she reigned supreme, and must have gloried in the complete defeat of her enemies. The royal army was released and allowed to sack the town of Ludlow, ransacking every house with the killing and destruction and raping that accompanied every sack. When the worst was over, the grandest lady in the land after the Queen herself, Cecily Neville, Duchess of York, emerged from the castle with her remaining children around her and stood in the centre of the marketplace in the chaos, waiting for her fate. Good place to stop, I think, with Cecily standing proudly in the market square, facing the consequences. But before we go, I have some donors to thank, as well as some donators. To my regular subscribers or donators, Bernard, Oak, Mary, James, Russell, David, Tudor Queen and Henry, thank you very much. And then new this month, Linda, Simon, Anthony and amazingly generous, Andrew. Thanks for those nice Christmas presents. For us all, folks, this is goodbye until after Christmas. Next week, there is an episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Then I think it'll be two weeks off until the 10th of January. Sorry about that. But I do have some good news. We have two guest episodes coming up. Sound the trumpets. Next week, we'll have Paul Vincent and the fall of Constantinople. Paul's an experienced podcaster on the myths and legends of Greece and Rome and of Europe. I've had a listen, and you're really going to enjoy it. And then, hopefully, maybe the weekend after New Year, we'll have a podcast on the battles I rather ducked, because talking about great French victories over the English is not really what I like to spend my time doing. 
but not so for Carl Rylett, author of A History of Europe, Great Battles podcast. He loves it. And so you can hear more about the battles of Formigny and Castillon. All of which is grand. So enjoy Christmas, those of you who celebrate the thing, and don't listen to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Thanks to everyone who's commented on the website, Facebook, iTunes and all that sort of thing. And to all of you who listen in. Good luck everyone, and see you in the new year. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.